You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, good morning. I want to turn in our scriptures to Psalm 73. Psalm chapter 73. Psalm 73, as we're on our way, we're kind of in these middle weeks a little bit where I ordered this week a bunch of first and second Samuel, but first Samuel books. So, Lord willing, we'll start that in two weeks here. Next week, a special Sanctity of Life presentation by George Grant um, via video, but I think it'll be good. Um, that'll be next week, and then the week after, be ready, we'll, we'll be starting First Samuel, then Lord willing. So, But today, we're in Psalm 73. I do have a picture from Malachi from last week. Two of them, I think a front and the back, or, or yeah, I think that was the case here. We, we, last week, we were looking at the mission of the church. One, and he wrote them down here, number one, exalting the Lord, exalting our God, worship. Number two, building up the body. Three, evangelizing the lost gentlemen, this is a football, and football continues this week, but the church continues for Christ forever, so that's a good thing. Whatever, football can do whatever it wants. Uh, The church, that's the mission, the glory of God. So thank you, Malachi, for that picture. Uh, Psalm 73, this sermon was kind of, I was thinking, built around verses 25 and 26, and we're going to get there, but it kind of, as I looked at the context, it kind of encaptured the whole psalm. So I'm going to read to us this psalm. You got it in front of you. You can, you can read along with me. Or look, look as I go. 28 verses. Listen to the psalm. Try to listen through the theme. What's going on with the author? What is the writer experiencing? And that will begin to give you some hints, clues to kind of how this all uh, is put together here. So let's, let's come to God's Word. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they're not in trouble as others are, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I 
I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray as we look into this. Father, again, we come to you, we seek you, we acknowledge you, we worship you for your word and for what is written in your word, and in particular, this psalm that takes us from these depths and the eyesight of looking to the wicked to the depths of who you are. So, Lord, we just ask and pray, again, guide our time for your glory, speak to your people, that the natural things, a natural man does not understand things of you, but your Spirit gives us understanding of who you are. So, Lord, grant that understanding. Grant clouded hearts, clouded eyes to see, to see your glory. See wickedness, see evil, see it in our own hearts, and then see your glorious grace in Christ. And so we pray that you would guide this time together in your word by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think it's going to shock you if I told you that your eyes don't always perceive or see what is actually reality. And physically, our eyes can deceive us. Some of those come in the form of images. Think of maybe on a hot road on a summer afternoon. Think of heat today. Uh, Mirage, you know, that looks like kind of watery, that sort of thing. I found two images. Caleb's going to bring up one of them here on the internet amongst a thousand others. But uh, one of them is this one. And see if you can tell which, what color, there it is, orange, i got to look at the right monitor, orange, which one of those orange circles is bigger? And maybe you've seen this before, Pat says they're the same, Pat knows this, you know this trick, don't you? Uh, just play along, Pat, with me. <laughs> yeah, so, but okay, so it looks, at least to my eyes, it looks, you know, one looks bigger, one looks small, but they're kind of, depends on the circles you've got around them, the small kind of makes us... It's comparison. Our eyes are deceived. Here's another one. See if you've seen this one. This is an interesting one. There's two images here. I thought they kind of looked like chess pieces. Apparently, they're, they're vases, vases. Uh, you see something else in there. See the people. Okay, okay. I'll give you a chance. Everybody see the people in there. There's people. They're kind of... Oh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay, I love it. Okay, so our eyes don't always, we see one thing, you know, it's kind of like those, uh, uh, are they stenograms? The ones with all the, all the squirrely stuff, and if you blur your eyes just right, you see the 3D F-16 fighter and the, all these sorts of things. They're, they're optical illusions. And you can find, you can look up, you know, look these on the internet, find a thousand of them. But you kind of get the point that our eyes don't always see the, the thing. We see that thing. But maybe over time, our eyes see something different. Our eyes are prone to not see reality. And I think the, the psalmist here in Psalm 73, whom I, I presume to be Asaph, it's called a psalm of Asaph, one of King David's chief musicians, kind of like the, the worship leader of modern times. That's who Asaph was. 
It would seem that he wrote this psalm some. I think John Calvin sees uh, David maybe writing the psalm or Asaph, maybe he commissioned this psalm. Whatever the case, the writers here, his eyes saw something that he determined to be reality. Here's what's real. And he looked around and he saw these things and they made him envious. They made him look at his life. His life looked like vanity and a wearisome task. And he even became like a beast toward God. Psalm 73 gives us a view to the reality we find ourselves in, kind of looking around, determining things, determining life based on our impressions, our eyesight, our own understanding. And this can come, like these pictures, can come with its own airs. And so we want to look at this psalm, kind of look at it on, on the whole, and then we're going to land to take a little more time in the, the two verses 25 and 26. But the context, again, I think it's worth the journey. So we're going to look real briefly, just kind of going through uh, the psalm together. So we come back to verses 1 and 2. They form kind of, call it the situation, an introduction to the psalm where the writer proclaims, he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Kind of the the true statement there. But then the psalmist gives the situation that had almost happened. You see it in verse 2. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He was close. He was on the verge. He was on the, the icy sidewalk. He was about to fall out and everything was to fall down. Things had gotten slippery in his life. And we might ask, why is that? And that's what verses 3 through 15 answer. And that's what we see here. And that's the context. I'm not going to read all those verses again. I'll pick up on two of them, verse 3 and verse 12. Kind of summary statements here. How did the psalmist, how did he almost slip? How did he almost stumble? Look at verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See what he's looking at? His eyes see, they see the arrogant, they see the wicked, and he begins to envy them. He begins to see, but it looked like they're prospering. The wicked look like life is, looks good. Verse 12 says, Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. So to the psalmist, it looks, here's the eyesight, looks like the wicked, they're at ease, they're prospering, they're even increasing in their riches, and he seems weary towards his own keeping his heart clean, striving for innocence. It seems like he's done it in vain. Verse 14, for all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Here is one who's seemingly done so much and gained so Little, and he knows God is good to those pure in heart, but experientially, his experience is it sure seems like the evil and the wicked are recipients of good. They don't face any real punishment for their actions. So, in one sense, the wicked, the evil, they seem to have it all. And the comparison is stark, and it seems to be eating away at the writer here. But then we come to verses 16 and 17, and they offer something we too would do well to consider in our own lives. Look at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. 
in these verses, here it is, where this, this foggy vision, the clouded heart, begin to clear up towards true reality. He went into the sanctuary of God. Now, my study Bible here, the ESV study Bible, describes a sanctuary as, quote, the holy place where God's people gather for worship. Maybe we think of temple where God's people here in this time would gather to sing this very psalm, to sing it together in the sanctuary, near the sanctuary. Quite simply, I think the psalmist here, he's, he's saying he's going into the presence of God, this sanctuary of God, this place of God, and it's here in God's presence, hearing from God, worshiping God, thinking God's thoughts after him, even with the gathered people of God. And so here he and we come into true reality. And here the psalmist begins to see their end, that is, the end of the wicked. And he also begins to understand his own folly, his own error, and then subsequently his own real hope. By way of application, just at this point, a stopping point here, are you coming to this sanctuary? You're here. Praise the Lord. Uh, but are you coming weekly? And we could even ask daily. We could even ask hourly. Are you coming to the sanctuary of the Lord? And really, can any of us, can, can I say, I, I have come as I ought. But here is offered in the presence of God, in His Word, seeing Him, who He is, by prayer, by His Spirit, there's this place of refuge, a place of rest, a place of reality. So when the confusion and chaos of life, when they overwhelm us, this psalmist is slipped and stumbled and envious, where do we go? The world speaks to us. Satan tempts us. Our own heart says to us, go anywhere but the Lord. Perhaps we seek truth and order. We seek meaning of life. Maybe there's a certain podcast or an influencer or someone with a voice horizontally in our, in our scope, in our sphere. Maybe we just, on the other hand, maybe we want to drown out life. Drown it out with movies or sleeping or drugs or what alcohol might do just to dull the senses. That might be how we think it best to deal with the confusion and chaos of life. God's Word here, God's Word encourages us to go where? To go to God, to go to the sanctuary. And it's there in the presence of God that we gain this discernment and the understanding of what is really real of reality. Think about that back from our truth project and, and what do you believe is really real and, and how that determines our quality of life and what we believe. And here it is say, saying, go to the Lord, go to His sanctuary. Then you can discern. And so verses 18 through 20 are in fact, here's the reality. Here's the reality for the evil and wicked. They are in slippery places themselves. They're going to be destroyed in a moment, swept away by the Lord when He arouses Himself. Think of their ultimate, discerning their end, verses 18 through 20. Um, Derek Kidner comments here. He says, Judgment is not simply the logical end or afterward of evil, though it has this quality. He says it's ultimately God's personal rejection. His dismissal of someone as of no further account or interest. Then he goes on to quote C.S. Lewis, and I think 
Lewis here is giving a picture of this judgment, saying this for the the evil and wicked. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. And Lewis paints quite a picture of the one left outside. With our weather these days, we have an image of that. Imagine the the cold, let's put it at night so it seems even colder, standing in the drift of snow with the cold wind blowing outside. And you know what that's like now. All of us are living through this and what it's like to open the door and come in. And come in. Here's this picture, though, I think ultimately for the evil and wicked, the the temperature is switched quite a bit. But you get the idea of this, this outside of God's presence being away, the coldness, the darkness, the chill, all of that heat later on. And yet that, that door where, where there's this warmth of God's presence gives us an idea, maybe a picture here of that. And so the wicked and evil, they will for all, and really for all in sin, they will be cut off from God, left on the outside, wanting in. That's the evil and wicked, but by verse 21 22, uh, it seems that the writer here is turning inward now. He's, not lo- he's no longer looking towards a view towards the, the evil or wicked. He's actually viewing himself. So verse 21 through 22, he's embittered. might say he's soured. He's pricked in heart. Um, tried to look, you know, what's, the, what's pricked in heart? The uh, New Living Translation says, I was all torn up inside. He was brutish, that's kind of animal-like, or he's saying, I was foolish, I was stupid, says I was ignorant, I was like a beast toward God. That's his view of himself, where he had almost slipped, and, and his actions. Spurgeon writes here, he says, we should be very loath to call an inspired man a beast, and yet penitence, think of pen, uh, repentance, Penitence made him call himself so. It was but an evidence of his true wisdom that he was so deeply conscious of his own folly. He goes on, We see how bitterly good men bewail mental wanderings. They make no excuses for themselves, but set their sins in the pillory and cast the vilest reproaches upon them. Oh, for grace! to detest the very appearance of evil. You hear what Spurgeon is saying in kind of an older English there? When when the writer begins to see his own folly, he marks it here, I think. He confesses it before the Lord. I think repentance here for him, it's part of beginning to see with God's eyes. And I think we see that, at least implied here, I was brutish, I was the ignorant one, I was these things. So there's this repentance. But then we come to verses 23 and 24. For truth, that in spite of this one's foolishness, there is the word here, nevertheless. In spite of this, nevertheless. And listen to this grace. Number one, four graces here, four truths. Number one, he remains in God's presence. It says there, I'm continually with you. Number two, he remains in God's care. You hold my right hand. Think of that. Think of a 
a toddler. I think of our little Peter trying to walk down maybe a, maybe a drift of snow or, or icy road or that taking of the hand of a toddler and just what security that is. Here's the Lord. Here's the psalmist looking to the Lord. You hold my right hand. I'm, I'm with you. You hold it. Number three, verse 24, I believe, he remains in God's counsel. Where it says there, you guide me with your counsel. Number four, he remains hopeful because afterward you will receive me to glory. These are four, and they really are, I think they're immense truths to anchor this heart in the true reality of the Lord. So the psalmist sees his own folly, his own brutishness, ignorance of like a beast, and he remembers now God's own gracious, his presence, his holding, his guiding, and his receiving. What a a switch. Repentance to remembering these these truths of the Lord. And so here we get to kind of the sort of maybe a climax of response by the psalmist in verse 25 and 26. Look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Temptation exists. It comes to us again, to look for something else in heaven and earth that will meet our need. That's the temptation. The psalmist has a conclusion here. What's the conclusion? There's nothing else. Stop looking. God is to be our greatest desire and delight. Psalm 16 drives this point home. Verse 5, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Or verse 11 of Psalm 16, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Where's fullness of joy? Psalmist stands, In your presence, at your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. In the New Testament, Paul would say it this way in Philippians 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So as the psalmist has come into the sanctuary, he's considered the Lord who's so worthy of glory and holding and guiding. There is nothing on earth to desire like this God. And so verse 25 is a good question for us in moments of despair or moments of calm, moments of bitterness, moments of languishing, moments of trial. Whom do you have? Who do you have? Is there something better and more precious? Spurgeon again comments on the writer of the psalm. He says this, He turns away from the glitter which fascinated him to the true gold which was his real treasure. Think about that. I haven't thought about that. Turns away, what's glitter? Kind of just a sparkly substance. There's some, I think, still left from Christmas programs here. This is glitter. He turns away from the glitter. It had fascinated him. Turns to the true gold, which was his real treasure. He felt that his God was better to him than all the wealth, health, honor, and peace which he had so much envied in the worldling. Yea, he, 
that is the Lord. He was not only better than all on earth, but more excellent than all in heaven. So whom do you have? Any answer to that question apart from the living God, it will not ultimately satisfy. It may feel like it for a moment, not ultimately. No Super Bowl is going to satisfy. No riches, no earthly relationships, as good as they are, important as they are. No vacation, no escape. Psalm 37.4 calls to us. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the the desires of your heart. All right, then look at verse 26 where he says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So verse 26 here, it admits what? It admits of weakness and frailty. And it also puts the weight of glory on God alone. And I think here, again, limited in my knowledge. I think the ESV, at least, translation could be stronger. Some of you, if you're reading King James, um, older NASB has it the same as the ESV. You have in there, may fail. Um, You've got that, my flesh and my heart may fail. I think it's stronger. It's they will. And I think a better translation there is they fail. They will, they do, they have. It's not that we might, we do fail. My flesh and my heart just simply fail. And we, like the psalmist, we're embittered. We too are we're brutish, we're ignorant, we're envious, we're making wrong conclusions based on our own eyesight and our own understanding. And we fail ourselves to be rightly disciplined. How many of our resolutions are still in place on this 14th day of January? Uh, we lack that. We don't pray as we ought. We know prayer is so good. And we don't as we ought. We don't read as we ought or fellowship as we ought or give as we ought. And I think as, if we begin to pay attention, we look closely. I think all of us looking more and more deeper in light of God's Word say, we're worse than we thought. Where Paul would say, I'm the worst of sinners. Psalm 40, 12, verse 12 puts it this way, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. That's Psalm 40, verse 12. John Calvin writes here, though, of this, the mingling. This mingling of seeing our failure, our own oughts and our own disappointments in that, in light of who God is, who is our strength and our portion. He says this, It is highly necessary for us to consider what we are without God. For no man will cast himself wholly upon God, but he who feels himself in a fainting condition and who despairs of the sufficiency of his own powers. I'm going to read that again. It's worth reading again. For no man will cast himself wholly upon God. You won't cast yourself wholly upon the Lord, he says. But he who feels himself in a fainting condition and who despairs of the sufficiency of his own powers. It's this. It's this verse. My flesh, it's failing. My heart is failing. And it's at that point where Calvin's saying the man will cast himself on the Lord. Jesus puts it this way in John 15. 
Abide in Me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from Me, you can do nothing. Nothing. And aren't we tempted to go, I think I can do something. Nothing. Apart from Christ. So, having a right view of the world around us begins with a right view of the failings of our own flesh and our own heart to which then, to borrow from Calvin, we cast ourselves upon the Lord and His power and strength. In fact, if you see the word strength there, at least in the ESV, you've got a little number by it. And if your eyes are good, you can look down and you can see that the Hebrew word for strength here is rock. Rock. And another George Swinnick has said this. He says, though the Though the winds may blow and the waves beat when the storm of death cometh, yet I need not fear that the house of my heart will fall, for it is built on a sure foundation. God is the rock of my heart. And he goes on to speak of God as his portion, saying, quote, My portion doth not lie in the rubbish and lumber, as theirs doth whose portion is in this life, be they never so large, but my portion containeth him whom the heavens and heaven of heavens can never contain. He's going, this portion, it looks like rubbish and lumber. lumber. That looked like the portion that maybe these wicked had. I've got a far greater portion whom even heaven itself cannot contain. Should the oceans you know, be, be as ink as we sang, couldn't write this love of God, this God, this portion whom we have. Again, I'm, I'm using Spurgeon a lot. He's got a commentary, Treasury of David, on these Psalms, and just I'm going to quote from him again. He, he writes this about man's flesh and heart here. By way, use it as a way of summary. He writes that the man's flesh and heart, quote, had failed him already, and he had almost fallen. They would fail him in the hour of death, and if he relied upon them, they would fail him at once. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. His God would not fail him, either as protection or a joy. His heart would be kept up by divine love and filled eternally with divine glory. Listen to this imagery. After having been driven far out to sea, Asaph, I think he sees Asaph as the writer of the psalm, Having been driven far out to sea, Asaph casts anchor in the old part. We shall do well to follow his example. There's nothing desirable save God. Let us then desire only him. All other things must pass away. Let our hearts abide in him who alone abideth forever. You see the hope and the glory of this verse. On the one hand, it speaks to the reality that we know within. My flesh, my own heart, fail. But it doesn't leave us there, does it? It says that's reality. They're failing. They fail. But God doesn't leave us there. He is our rock, our strength, our portion. Again, not a portion, just a little bit for a little meal. It's not just for today. Our portion forever. Forever. 
And not, again, so we can boast somehow in what we've done. And he kind of got me on my feet and I got going. He got us on our feet and he held us on our feet. And he held us from slipping and he held our hand and he guided us and he will receive us into glory forever. That's our portion. That's our Lord. And so he alone is glorified. Last two verses conclude this psalm with a theme that those far from God, those unfaithful, shall perish. That's verse 27. Those far from you shall perish. But then look at verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. There is only one way, there is only one reality that can deliver the sinner who is doomed to perish. And it's the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Made me think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not, should not perish, but have eternal life. The reality of all of us here, as we know from Romans, maybe we've studied it, do we know it? None of us are righteous. No one's good. All are born in sin, and we sin, and we fail, and we'll perish. But one, one has fulfilled the law. He has lived perfectly faithfully, never having done evil. And then he shed his blood on the cross for sinners. And that is Jesus Christ. And so all who are in Christ have this sure anchor. You can be out to sea and you've got an anchor. That anchor is Christ. And there we are set on a firm foundation and we can take hold of the promises of this psalm in Christ. So those who see their great sin, do you see it? If you see your great sin, those who see it are those who run and they run to the cross of Christ. They run to this refuge of God who is Christ. So have you fled to Him? Have you run to this refuge? I encourage you, if you've not today, repent, confess. I am ignorant. I'm brutish. I'm, I'm failing in a thousand ways. This is my sin. And then run to Jesus and believe on Him. To you who are in Christ Are you enjoying, maybe enjoying the world while you can? Um, Come to Christ. We've got a precious reality. It's the title of the sermon. Precious reality for failing hearts. And that is that the Lord God is the strength of your heart. He's your portion forever. At the bottom, I appreciate Khalees putting this in the bulletin today. The bottom of your notes in the bulletin, there's a little verse there. Verse 26. Feel free to clip it out. Put it in your car, put it somewhere, memorize. If you're going to memorize one verse this year, maybe let it be Psalm 73, 26. It's also on the front. Uh, ladies, if you want a little more beautiful version of it, you've got two versions you can choose. It's there for you. Memorize. Let this filter or, or, or memorize the whole psalm, whatever you want to do. But let God's Word be with you daily, hourly, as you go about the tasks, even of this year as we're just starting into this new year. Come to this precious reality for your failing heart. Let's pray. Lord, our eyes are so often drawn 
to what is not really the case. Father, I pray we would be drawn to the reality that our hearts and our flesh are far more failing than we even think they are. We're far further off in our sin than we thought we were. And yet, Lord, at the same moment, the mingling of this, give us those eyes that great sinners cast themselves on a great and gracious God who is our Savior through Jesus Christ. We thank you once again. This is one psalm, one promise out of thousands in your scriptures, in your word. One promise, one psalm of hope for failing hearts and failing flesh. And that is you, Lord. You are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. And so in our lives, may we count all things as rubbish, not worth the glory of knowing you, Jesus. And Lord, help us to shoo those things away by your Spirit that we would delight ourselves in you and that you would give us the desires of our heart. We pray this in your name. been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.